I trust you all come to this church because you're interested in getting Bible. Because <clears throat> uh, you're going to be getting a lot of it between Sunday school and the sermon today. Lots of Bible today. So if that's not why you're here, please see yourself out. <laughs> we'll just watch you. Now, when uh, people ask me about our church and stuff, people who just aren't familiar with our church, I just tell them we've got Jesus in the Bible. If that's what you're into, that's what we got. And if you're not, then we're probably not the church for you. So anyway, you'll get lots of Bible today. So uh, start now having your Bible thinking cap on, being ready to flip around in your Bible. That'll be happening a lot today in both services, okay? How about I pray and then we'll get into uh, what we have for Sunday school. Father, we thank you so much for this day you've given us that you just show your faithfulness and your mercy today already, that we are recipients of your grace. And we ask that as we go through your word, as we look into this study in the next, that our minds would be engaged, that our view of you would be magnified, elevated, that you'd be lifted up in our hearts, and uh, that we would take that view of you out into the world and to teach our family, to teach our neighbors as witnesses, as Christ's ambassadors. God, help us to be faithful in this mission for your sake, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we started page 23, so make sure you're on page 23 in the notes. We began the section on Christ as King, and what makes this a little more difficult, this talking about Christ as King as opposed to prophet and priest? What's the aspect to this kingship that makes it difficult? Okay, there's an already not yet going on, okay? When you think of Jesus as prophet, that happened, past tense, right? He came, he was here, he spoke, apostles wrote the words down, done. Pretty straightforward, okay? With priest, it gets a little more complicated because there was a past action. What was the big action of Jesus as priest? What did he do? Yeah, The sacrifice of himself, dying on the cross, that was a priestly action, wasn't it? He offered up the ultimate sacrifice of himself. But then there's an ongoing aspect, isn't there? Hebrews 7.25, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So there's past tense, but also present tense. Now with his kingship, there's a present tense and a future tense. So you see how this is all kind of different. Prophet, just past tense. Priest, past and present. King, present and future. All right, so that's what makes this uh, a little bit confusing as we think through the elements of of what's happening here. But last week we looked at these passages. We looked at uh, Matthew, well, Isaiah 9, first of all, that there would be one born to us and the government would be on his shoulders, and he was recognized as a king early on. We see that in Matthew 2 and John 12. So from the moment of his birth... Jesus was rightly called king, all right? So, rightly so, he was called king. Um, We also must recognize that Jesus' status as king was rejected by people. So, he was recognized as king by many people, but this kingship was also rejected. Let's look at Matthew 27 together. There are three different verses in Matthew 27. When we looked at Matthew 2 last week to see that Jesus is king, we saw that they were wanting to find this one who was born 
king of fill in the blank? The Jews, right, okay. Well, that terminology is coming back up again. So you have from his birth a recognition that he is king of the Jews. Well, here we have his death. And there's still a recognition that he's king of the Jews, but in a sad way. Let's uh, have someone read these three verses for us. Matthew 27, 11, 29, and 37. Who's got it for us? Evelyn, go ahead. Yep. All right, so you have that same terminology, king of the Jews. Not just king, but it's specifically king of the Jews. And you have Jesus here, this is important, you have Jesus responding in the affirmative, saying, yes, that is, that is true, it is as you say. All right, let's drop down to 29 now. All right, so here's this title coming up again, but they obviously aren't recognizing him truly as king of the Jews. This is while they are killing him. They're mocking him, is what Matthew specifically says. But there's that title again, and then we see it also in verse 37. All right, so the whole title became a mockery. Even though it's true, he is king of the Jews. This is how the Romans treated him, and then the crowd of Jews, of course, that were also there yelling, crucify him. So he was rejected by the nations as king. He was rejected by the nation that he's king of, the Jewish nation. He was rejected by Israel. And then he's also rejected by the Romans, the, the pagan governors, the Gentile leaders. He's rejected by them. And so there's a recognition that he is king. He even says it. But it's also rejected that he's king. Now, this fact doesn't make it any less correct to acknowledge him as king. However, it is clear that he did not establish an earthly kingdom in his first coming. So that's what you have and for those blanks there on the middle of page 23. He did not establish an earthly kingdom in his first coming. That's just obviously true. Okay, He came as king of the Jews. He was rejected, yet he is still king, but he doesn't have an earthly kingdom. He did not establish an earthly kingdom in his first coming. So I'll pause there to see if there are any thoughts that we have on that passage, Matthew 27, the rejection of Jesus as king. All right, let's keep going. Third thing we need to see is that Christ's church refers to him as king. So you have the Jews and the Gentile uh, leaders rejecting him as king. And yet, he, what, goes, what happens in the pages that follow, you get into the book of Acts, and the church forms. Jesus starts building his church. And in the church, we call him king. I hope we do, anyway. And let's look at a couple passages that indicate this. Acts 17 would be where we want to start. This is in Thessalonica, Paul's missionary journeys. We're in the city of Thessalonica, and would someone read for us verses 5 through 8? Acts 17, 5 through 8. Mike, go ahead.
All right, so it's important to note that this, of course, isn't Jason himself speaking. He was a, an early believer. This isn't the church them, themselves being quoted. This is a report about the church that they are saying that there is another king, namely Jesus. Now, um, it is almost entirely certain that they were embellishing whatever was said about Jesus to the point that they were lying, they were being deceitful because they wanted the church to be arrested. They wanted the church to be persecuted so that it wouldn't exist anymore. And they would say, they would go to their government officials and say, hey, this group over here, they're talking about another king. They're saying, you know, we should overthrow the government because we have another king. They're saying, we don't need to obey our leaders because we have another king. Uh, you should probably look into that. Okay? Now, how much of that is true? Uh, we, we don't know exactly uh, what was being said, and we don't ex know exactly what happened. But I think we can cross-reference this over to Luke 23. Turn back to the first installment of what Luke wrote. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Let's go to Luke 23 and look at the first two verses there, because something very similar was happening. Back when Jesus was alive, Luke 23, verses 1 and 2 Ah, I'll read to 5. Luke 23, 1 to 5. It says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. Okay, so Jesus is being escorted before Pilate. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept insisting, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Did Jesus teach that we should not pay taxes? In fact, he taught the opposite, didn't he? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah, sadly, that passage exists and we do have to pay taxes, okay? That is, that's just the reality. Uh, you also get that in Romans 13. We actually have two passages in the New Testament where we're taught to pay taxes. So when they came and brought this report, there's like mixed truth with lie here, isn't there? He teaches that he himself is Christ. Well, yeah, that's true. He did teach that. He teaches the people not to pay taxes. Well, no, that's not true. He teaches that he is a king. Well, that's true. He teaches that, or he misleads, rather, our nation. That's what they said. He's misleading our nation. Well, that's not true. He didn't mislead the nation. And so you have people making a report, both here in Luke 23 and in Acts 17. It's the same kind of thing that's happening, where they're reporting to worldly leaders that Jesus or his people are pushing back against the government. They're leading a coup against the government. And that's... Uh, almost certainly not the case in Thessalonica. I don't think Jason and his people were planning to overthrow the government, okay? I don't think that was their plan. But were they referring to Jesus as king? I bet they were. I bet they were, okay? And we also see this in 1 Timothy 1.17. I'll just read this for you. You don't necessarily have to turn there. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.17, there's this great doxology, this statement of praise it says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's not being directed to one person of the Trinity in particular. Uh, Paul in this letter isn't saying to the Father, 
who is King Eternal or to the Son or to the Spirit, but there's a general proclamation of praise to God, the triune God. And of course, I think this could be applied to each one of them, each one of the persons, uh, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Okay? And then there's another passage, I think, that's even more explicit than these, but we'll get to it here in a moment. All right? So any thoughts, questions at this juncture as we're thinking about the church referring to Christ as king? Okay. Very good. Making it easy. Jesus currently has a kingly throne. Now, this is curious. He currently has a kingly throne, and he is king of the church. It could rightly be said that he's king of the church. I think I usually stand here. That's what's been throwing me off. The TV right behind me. I don't like that. There we go. That's better. This way I'm in spitting distance of Virginia. So get your shield up. All right. Let's look at these. Uh, let's have a volunteer get... Um, Let's do the three that are on the paper. How about that? So Luke twenty two sixty nine. Who can get that one for us? Luke twenty two sixty nine. April, Colossians three one. Thank you, Katrina. And then Revelation three two one three twenty one. Rex, thank you very much. Okay, so these three passages we want to look for Jesus having a kingly throne, which is an interesting concept. All right, let's uh, let's go through them one by one. April. Could you read for us Luke twenty two sixty nine? Okay, Jesus teaches that after his death, resurrection, ascension, he's going to sit at the right hand of the power of God. So there's a sitting that's happening. That means there's a throne, and uh, he is at the right hand of the power of God. Very interesting. Katrina, Colossians three one. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That's a kingly, authoritative place, isn't it? That's where he is. And then Revelation 3.21, Jesus is giving encouragement to churches to keep going, to endure to the end. And listen to his reasoning as to why he's calling these churches to endure to the end. Go ahead, Rex. Okay. So Jesus says, for those who overcome in this life, the Christians who endure, there will be a, a throne for them. They will be with Jesus reigning and ruling, sitting with Jesus on his throne. And then he makes a correlation and says, just as I overcame and sat with my father. Can you read that very last part again, Rex? He, where did he sit? Where did, uh, on 321, Jesus said he sat where? Okay, and then the next phrase after that. Okay. So Jesus sat down on whose throne? Father's throne. Okay, now that's pretty interesting. Uh, so there's a little bit of difficulty in trying to figure out just exactly whose throne it is that Jesus is seated on. Because you have this verse that says it's the Father's throne. But then you have other places where it seems like Jesus has his own throne. Can you sit on two thrones at once? <laughs> Can you sit on one throne actually and another one in a spiritual sense? Uh, it's difficult. Because whose throne is Jesus ultimately going to be sitting on as promised in the Old Testament? David's throne. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights in the Davidic covenant. God promised him a house, a kingdom, and a throne that will endure. 
and Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. So is the Father's throne the throne of David? Well, a lot of people would say, no. The throne of David is going to be an earthly throne. He's going to be manifesting that here on the earth in the future. Okay? So that's something to think about. Uh, but Jesus, either way you, you look at the throne business, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now in a sense, isn't he? He's ruling in the church. He doesn't have an earthly physical kingdom. The governments of the earth are not on his shoulder. That was the promise in Isaiah and elsewhere. That's not happening yet. We still are living under pagan governments. We're still living under tyranny. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, just think of how ridiculous it would be to tell the, the Jews who were uh, suffering under uh, Hitler's terror whenever that was happening now, coming up on 100 years ago, 80 years ago, that to tell them that their Messiah had his, his earthly kingdom and was ruling and reigning. While they were being put into the chambers and the ovens and everything else under Hitler. Hey, so there is no earthly kingdom yet, physical kingdom yet. I mean, if, if you were to tell them, well, the government is on Jesus' shoulders. They'd say, uh, are you serious? Your Messiah is, is ruling the government. Not yet. Not yet. Okay, so we're awaiting a future time. And it, Scripture tells us what we're waiting for. What, what, what we're waiting for in this moment, as Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father, what are we waiting for? It says in that most referenced verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, what? Sit at my right hand. Yes. So there's the language. There's the timing language. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's what's happening right now. We're waiting. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. That's clear. I mean, we didn't read all the passages, but from these passages that are referenced there and on your sheet, we see that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God, but we're waiting. We're waiting until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Let's uh, jump over. This one isn't on your sheet, but let's jump over to 1 Corinthians 15, because this is an important cross-reference here. 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll read 22 to 28. Okay, so there are a couple passages that weren't listed out for you on the sheet. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Okay, so we get some of the same sort of language here about what's happening, that Christ is having all of his enemies put under his feet. And at that time then, when that is totally complete, when that action is totally finished, then he will hand the kingdom 
over to the Father. And he himself will be in subjection to the Father from that point on through eternity. Uh, let's look at uh, verses 23 and 24 again. There are three phases that are listed out in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 24. What are the three phases? Each in his own order. What's the order? Okay, which is described as Christ doing what? Well, before that, what did Christ do? Uh, he wrote, yeah, he, he rose from the dead. Look again at verse 23. All will be made alive, it says at the end of verse 22, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. He rose from the dead first, didn't he? Okay, then, then what happens? Good. Dead in Christ, rise when? When, when do the dead in Christ rise, according to that verse? Oh, come on. Good, thank you. That is coming. So, has that happened yet? <laughs> Very good. That was a test. Okay, it has not happened yet. So, we have a 2,000 plus year gap right there, don't we? Okay? So, there's been a, we're in the middle of the gap between steps one and two. That's where we are. And then what's the third thing? Verse 24. Okay. The kingdom delivered to the Father. Oops. Now, the question is, for the thoughtful person, you might be wondering, what kingdom? Which kingdom? What is being delivered over to the Father? And there are different ways that you could go about answering that. The way I'm going to answer that is this, this earthly kingdom that's going to be established. We're, we're still waiting for many prophecies to be fulfilled, aren't we? This whole government on his shoulders business I've been talking about. Jesus sitting on the throne of David. We're waiting for that. This physical earthly manifestation of Jesus' kingship. The Messiah's explicit uh, expression of his kingly authority over all nations. Uh, perhaps you remember in Psalm 2 and in Revelation 19, it talks about Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. That hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for Jesus to rule with a rod of iron. Right now he rules with a shepherd's hook, doesn't he? But there'll be a time where he is over all the nations with a rod of iron. So just as there was a gap between uh, 1 and 2 here, I think there's a gap between two and three, and we'll get into this before the end of this lesson. I think that's a thousand-year gap, okay, and we'll talk about that more. And after the kingdom is established, after the kingdom is expressed on the face of the earth, it will, and all of his enemies are put under his feet, he will turn over the kingdom to the Father, and he himself will be in subjection to the Father, okay? Now, that should bring up a question or two, I would think, but maybe not. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, we still... Thank you. I'm tired of hearing my own voice. Someone else needs to say something. Yes. Yeah. So, um, when Christ came to earth, was walking on earth, and we looked at this a little bit when... Uh, 
oh, when we were looking at Jesus as prophet, he said explicitly, I came not to do my will, but the will of the Father. He says explicitly, I speak not on my own initiative, but I speak the words that the one who sent me gives me. So within the triune God, because the Father and Son are distinct persons, there is a submission relationship that I began, or believe, I believe began, that's what I meant to say, I began believe, I believe began when Jesus came to earth and, and took on flesh. From that moment forward, Jesus was in obedience to the Father in all things. Philippians chapter 2, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he was obedient to the Father. So even in his kingly rule, uh, Jesus is going to be ruling as the God-man. After he resurrected, he still had a body. When he ascended to heaven, he still has a body. When he comes back, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, it says. He's going to have physical feet touching the Mount of Olives. And he's going to be ruling as not just, not just a man, but as a man. He is, of course, God too. But he's going to be exercising a kingly authority in a human body, a glorified human body. And he still is in submission to the Father in that sense. Just as in his first coming he was in submission, in his second coming he will be in submission. Same thing. There's order within the Trinity. And you can even look at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not send himself. He was sent to earth by the Father and the Son, Jesus taught. So, there's order within. So, yeah, that will be um, with the new... I mean, obviously, Jerusalem will be renovated at that time. Uh, you can read about that, of course, in the prophets. There will be geographical changes, not, not just with cities and buildings, but with the actual physical land that will happen. But then you have the new heaven and new earth business and a new city descending from heaven, the new Jerusalem. And that happens after, yeah, after step three here. Yeah. You're a stubborn person. Okay, just say it. Yes, correct. Very good. There's got to be order, right? I mean, what would this life be if nobody submitted to anybody? It'd be total chaos. And I think we're headed there as a nation, quite frankly. But, <clears throat> but there has to be order. That's exactly right. So you have um, a submission relationship explained in Scripture in several different ways. Uh, the most common one that people think of, wives submit to your husbands, and then that, your mind automatically jumps to, well, that means women are less than, and men are, are meant to be dictators of the home. And a lot of people can jump there, which just isn't true. Children are to submit to their parents, but who of us looks at our children and say they're less than human or that they're less than us or something like that? Um, now, we recognize there's a dynamic there where they're immature. There's childishness there uh, that has to be worked out, but that doesn't make them less by nature. We look at uh, authority. We are all called to submit to the governing authorities, which as Americans we don't like. Uh, but, but who would say, well, that means we're less than authorities? Well, no, it's just order. That's just order. Uh, you, you have the all creation is going to be in submission to Jesus. You have angels and levels of submission within angels and in relation to God and to us, 
right now we're lower than the angels, but later we will judge angels. Um, and so, yeah, you have all kinds of submission relationships, but you're very correct in saying it's not about more or less than, it's about order. Other thoughts or questions? James. He will reign forever, yes. Well, you can think of um, right now, he's sitting with the Father on his throne. And, and you see that also at the end of Revelation, where you have uh, God and the Lamb reigning. That, that reign continues on, but there is an order to that reigning. Uh, so will we know what it looks or how that plays out later on? Probably we'll know a little more. Uh, <laughs> right now, we just have this given to us that at that time, Jesus is going to turn the kingdom over and we'll be in subjection to the Father, but that doesn't mean his reigning ends. And that's a great point. Uh, we have the testimony of Revelation 5, I think. Uh, his kingdom is forever, just explicitly stated. Okay? But that doesn't mean that it's always going to look the same. For instance, his kingdom now, there is a kingdom that he has now. It's going to look different after he returns, but it's still his kingdom. So there's different phases of the same kingdom, I guess. Do you have a thought, question, Connie? Yep. Yep. Yes. So, again, thinking about not more or less than between the persons, but different roles and functions. Uh, a very simple way to think about this is that the Father did not die for our sins, did he? The Son did. Okay. So, we recognize that the Father sent the Son. He was involved, but they each had a particular role to play. The Son was the one who took on a human body, and sacrificed himself. And so that doesn't make anyone, either one of them uh, more or less God than the other, but it shows that in his amazing program, God has different roles. So again, with the Holy Spirit, it, it's not his function to rule and reign from a throne. It's not the role of the Spirit or the Father to take on a human body, only the Son. And so there's order within the Trinity, and there's different function, too. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. The Holy Spirit is the one with whom we should be the mo have the most personal relationship. It so, yeah, well, the, Jesus said he would, the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's John 16. But to the church, he comes, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have this unique relationship with the Spirit that we, we don't have with the Son or the Father. And so, it, again, it's not a matter of more or less, but it is a matter of different function. Okay. Yep, you bet. Other thoughts or questions? See, Joe, you got the ball rolling. Good job. <clears throat> okay, well, I'll jump on to the uh, next thing. Jesus introduced his kingdom... And he claimed that all authority belongs to him. He says he is king. All right, so yet another aspect of this. You don't have these verses on your sheet, but uh, do you know what Jesus' first words were when he went out for his earthly ministry? After his uh, temptation in the wilderness with the devil, he now begins his ministry. And what were the first words? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there is a, a very real sense in which Jesus was presenting the kingdom of heaven in his first coming. Now, again, did he, did he go on to establish 
an earthly kingdom. No, he didn't. I mean, we already read the part where he died on a cross with a mocking sign above him that said, King of the Jews. Okay? He didn't establish an earthly kingdom. But he came presenting the kingdom of heaven, and that has an effect that carries on, which is important for us to recognize. Let's, uh, let's look at Matthew 12, 28, because uh, I cannot remember what that one says. Matthew 12... Okay, yeah, that's a good one. Someone get Matthew 12, 28, and I'll grab the Matthew 28, 18 verse. Who's got Matthew 12, 28? You can get that for us. Thanks, Jen. All right, so Jesus says explicitly, his casting out of demons is a demonstration or an example or a proof that the kingdom of God has come upon the people who are beholding that. So again, this isn't the explicit uh, kingdom that's prophesied in the Old Testament, the physical kingdom that's in the Old Testament. You read through the prophets of the Old Testament, over and over again, you're seeing these visions of an explicitly physical, earthly kingdom that the Messiah will rule. This isn't that, but it's still a manifestation or an evidence of the kingdom of God, that here he is walking among them and performing miracles. And then after his resurrection, before he ascended, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus says he has presently all authority in heaven and on earth. So we can rightly say Jesus is king of kings, Lord of lords. Whatever earthly government structure Whatever earthly person you want to throw at Jesus, Jesus is king of him. Jesus has authority over him. Jesus is his ruler. Now, again, it hasn't been explicitly shown through his kingdom that he's going to have on the face of the earth, but it's nevertheless true, and that kingdom is coming. Jesus made it very clear that though he is king, his kingdom is not like worldly kingdoms. And we should all go to John 18 now to see that interaction because He has this back and forth with Pilate about his kingdom. John 18, starting in verse 33. It's a little bit longer of a section, eight verses. But would someone like to read John 18, 33 to 40 for us? John 18, 33 to 40. Thank you, Mandy. Okay, wow. That is a very dramatic interaction, isn't it? What is truth? What a question to ask. And there's debate on what kind of intonation he had when he said that. Like, what is truth? Or a genuine, what is truth? Those are two very different questions, aren't they? But uh, Jesus says here that his kingdom is not of this world. That's in verse 36. That's the quote. My kingdom is not of this world. And then he goes on to say... If it was of this world, then his servants would be fighting to overthrow the government, to make Jesus the king instead of, or the ruler instead of Pilate, to make him a king instead of Herod. So what is Jesus saying here? Uh, There could be an interpretation that says all of those prophecies that existed up to this point about the Messiah that described in great detail a physical earthly kingdom are now being reinterpreted by Jesus in that he's not going to have a physical earthly kingdom at all. But instead, when 
Amos and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah are talking about figs and grapes and oil and milk and honey and all of that and peace and safety that Israel will have among their nations. Instead, all that they were really saying is that the Messiah is going to build a church. That's how some people take that. And uh, I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is actually still here in verse 36 when he says that, no, his, his servants are not going to be having a government coup, but his servants are, go, are, uh, are going to follow him because his kingdom is not of this realm. So as Laney puts it in his commentary, his kingdom does not take its origin or draw its power from the unbelieving world. And that's the example that Jesus gave. If my kingdom was of this world, had its origin or its power from this world, then my servants would reflect that in the way they fight and to establish my kingdom. Jesus goes on to explain that if his kingdom did not draw its origin and power from this world, or did draw its origin and power from this world, his servants would have used military means to prevent his arrest. Although Jesus' kingdom will eventually involve an earthly domain, it will not depend on men for its establishment and support. And praise God for that. If it was up to us to establish the kingdom of God through earthly means, it wouldn't happen. Okay? It just wouldn't happen because we are feeble and frail as we sing about. And so Jesus' kingdom does not have origin. It does not have its power from the earthly realm. It is not of this world. His kingdom is of an eternal power. His kingdom is of an invisible heavenly power. And one of these days that will be explicitly manifest on the face of the earth, we're just not at that point in God's program yet. Okay? All right, still going okay. Got about 15 minutes here. Oh, got out of order there, didn't I? Jesus is spiritually ruling over the church as king and shepherd right now. So now that everything I just said, I don't want to like counteract this fact that Jesus is king now, and he's shepherd right now over the church. The church is the first installment of his kingdom. And I want you all to see this in Colossians 1 with me. Everybody turn there to Colossians chapter 1. This is a very important verse where it explicitly says that Jesus is the king of the church. Okay. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Talking to Christians, the apostle Paul says that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as a Christian right now, you exist in whose kingdom domain? This verse says, the Son's, Jesus Christ's kingdom domain. Now, this isn't all that there is. There's more to come. But you, as a member of the church, are a part of that first installment of the kingdom as Jesus' kingdom will become more and more explicit in the ages to follow. And the rule that Jesus has will be fully realized in physical form in the millennium. That's where I got this, uh, that's why I put a thousand years here, his millennial kingdom, when the disciples rule with him. So why don't you guys go ahead and jump over to Revelation 20, and I'll read Matthew 19, 28. Both of these passages are critical in understanding what it means that Jesus is king, and he will be king. So you have Revelation 20, 4 to 6, but before that I want to read to you Matthew 19, 28. 
1928. I'd say that was a good year, wasn't it? But no one in here was alive for 1928. So, all right. Matthew 19:28. Okay, listen carefully to what Jesus says here to his disciples. Uh, they ask the question, this is verse 27. The disciples ask, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Pretty bold question to ask Jesus, isn't it? Well, Jesus replies to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Right. So, in this passage, me, well, those other colors I feel don't show up very well. This is uh, Matthew 19.28. You've got three elements in here that are really important to uh, make sure you grasp. Jesus says this is going to happen in the regeneration And the regeneration. Okay? He says at that time, he will sit on his throne. And whose throne does he say that he's sitting on now in Revelation 3.21, Rex? you remember that? Father's throne. Okay? And disciples also rule. You will rule with me. So I'll just put the, they rule with, okay? So you have three things happening. In the regeneration, now that means when, uh, it's actually the same word as born again, to be born again. In the regeneration, in the born again experience that the world will encounter, in the new world, okay, that's what Jesus is referencing, it appears, because he goes on to talk about things that will happen in the world. He will sit on his glorious throne. So now this is specifically his throne, not the Father's throne, but his throne. And the disciples, too, will sit upon thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They will reign with him during this time. There will be a co-reigning and a judging that will happen. Now, for Jesus, this is all future tense. This is all going to happen in the future. And there are other passages in the Bible that indicate that this is a future experience. This isn't some mystical, spiritual thing that's happening now. It's a very explicit thing that will happen on the face of the earth later on. Okay? So Jesus gives us an indication uh, a little bit more about what this kingdom will look like and when it will happen. Thoughts on Matthew 19, 28 before we look at Revelation? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and this is before Matthias. So is Judas is Iscariot going to be? Yeah. Well, um, it seems that there are different ways to answer that. <laughs> there are always different ways to answer everything. Uh, so one way to look at that is saying every disciple will have a throne, generally speaking. He's got 12 in front of him there. He says, okay, uh, disciples who follow me are going to, have, are going to have thrones. So that's one way. Probably the easiest escape. Uh, the other way is to say that the Apostles will have a specific uh, function in the millennium in their judging of the 12 tribes. Now, we know in the new earth they're going to have a specific recognition of authority because, remember, you've got the gates and the, uh, the walls with the 12 tribes of Israel written out and the 12 apostles' names written out. 
in the new earth. That's pretty interesting. But, uh, but you could say, okay, no, the, the 12 apostles are going to have a specific function in, in Jesus' kingdom when he sits on his throne. But then you have this problem, what do you do with Judas? And then what do you do now that we added Matthias and Paul? And some people believe James, the half-brother of Jesus, was also an apostle. Some people believe Barnabas was also an apostle. Well, you have some people that, and this is really kind of going far afield, but you asked for it. Uh, you've, got, you've got some people who say the uh, 11 apostles made a mistake after Judas killed himself by uh, getting Matthias in. They should have waited because in God's timing, Paul was coming along. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They acted rashly like uh, Joshua with the Gibeonites. That's one way of answering that. I'm not entirely comfortable with that answer. Uh, I'm not comfortable with that answer at all, actually. Uh, then you have this idea of, well, um, it will be the, just the 12 with Matthias replacing Judas because Paul says he was one untimely born. The last of all came, came him as one untimely born. So Paul or anybody else who maybe has the title apostle in the book of Acts or is referred to or thought of as an apostle, they had a different function than the original. So that's another way because there was a qualification with replacing Judas, that the one who replaced Judas had to be someone who saw the risen Lord and was with them during the ministry, and that was Matthias. And so he, only he could have met that qualification. So there you go. Yeah, not a really satisfying answer to that, but. Other thoughts or questions? An easier one than that would be good. <laughs> Okay, say that again. Are they going to do what now? Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, we just don't have that information. Like, we don't have, Bartholomew, you're assigned Judah. Or, uh, you know, Judah's not Iscariot, you get Nephtali. Okay, we, we don't have that. Um, but there's a correspondence, obviously. We'd be fools to say that there, it doesn't matter that there's 12 here and 12 there. That matters. But how that plays out, we just don't know. Good question. Thinking person's question. Okay. All right. Uh, Revelation 20. Let's look at this. <clears throat> verses 4 to 6. Someone want to read those three verses for us? Revelation 20, 4 to 6. Mandy, thank you. All right, so this is where we get the thousand years language, and it really starts up in verse 1 of Revelation 20, where the first action before Jesus begins to reign is that Satan is bound for a thousand years. So you have a few things that have to happen here before this thousand-year kingdom begins. One is that Satan has to be bound. And he's not just bound like they put ropes around his arms and they threw him in a corner and put a dunce cap on him or whatever. That's not what's going on. It says specifically that an angel comes... And he is thrown into a bottomless pit, an abyss. And verse 3 says that there was a seal placed over the abyss so that he would no, no longer deceive the nations. What can you do when you're locked and sealed in a bottomless abyss? Nothing. The answer is nothing. Okay? There's probably no cell service in there even. Okay? You got, can't do anything. You're, you're, yeah, you're stuck. Okay? So that has to happen. 
And then what Mandy just read for us, there's other stuff that's happening before this thousand years. There's a resurrection here, right? You see that? People got to come to life so that they can reign with him for a thousand years. You also have this beast in his image, the mark on their forehead and on their hand. You got all this business going on. So all that stuff has to exist and be made manifest before this thousand years can begin. So there's, there, there are several elements that have to take place before the thousand years begins. However, once all that happens, we get to this point where Jesus is ruling and reigning for a thousand years. This is in physical form on the face of the earth. The disciples are ruling with him. You have resurrected saints ruling with Jesus for 1,000 years. And there's no good reason to say that this thousand years isn't a thousand years because it says it so many times through these six verses. It says a thousand years over and over again. And uh, so we have no reason really to, to dodge that. Okay. Thoughts or questions on the millennium? We will definitely get into more detail on this months down the road when we do eschatology. But any preliminary questions now I would entertain for a couple minutes? Joanna. She, Joanna did raise her hand. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, well, thank you for letting me know. Melissa forgot to relay that to me, so I'll do a little Bible study with Jackson about that. But Zechariah 14 is your answer. Zechariah chapter 14. It says, again, I referenced this earlier, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So uh, Mount Olivet still exists. You can go over to Jerusalem now and see it. It's still there. And when Jesus returns, he's going to stand on that mountain. And what's going to happen to the mountain? Split. Okay, and who's going to run through it? Not us. Yeah, screaming Jews. Very good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Israelites, during the tribulation, he's providing safe passageway for them as he returns to start putting his enemies under his feet in a very explicit fashion. Okay? And so um, Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and he does rule and reign from Jerusalem also. The prophets tell us that. That's going to be like... The, the center of the world now, the one ruling with a rod of iron still has his physical body. He's going to be in a physical location and it will be Jerusalem. Yep. Mandy. Yeah, so you have to have a couple phases here with resurrection, right? Um, because, and it goes into that in verse 11. So you have this resurrection of everybody else that happens at the end. The great and small, the, those who were uh, the sea, who died in the sea, the sea gives up their dead and the land gives up their dead. And there's a resurrection that sends those people directly to the great white throne judgment. Another place we won't be, praise God. Because uh, the great white throne judgment, what happens then is the books are opened, the deeds of their life and the book of life. And they're not in the book of life. Their deeds prove them to be sinners who are not justified before a holy God. And the result of that is being cast into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur forever and ever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. It's Revelation 20. That's Revelation for you. Welcome to Revelation. <laughs> no. Hey, Rex. Yeah, so you've got... Um, all kinds of things in the Old Testament. I'll give you three things. So one is, again, uh, Zechariah 14. It's an amazing chapter. And that's how his prophecy ends. That's the last chapter. 
And he talks about, at the end, Egyptians participating in the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, during that time. And so there will be a reinstatement of the law, certain aspects of the law. And, the, and we have to remember, people get freaked out about this. Like, how could there be a reinstatement of the law? We're not saved by law. Well, you never were saved by the law. The law was never given as, as a means of salvation. Okay? But it says that Egyptians are going to be participating in the Feast of Booths. Where do you read about that? The law. Okay? So there's going to be a reclamation of the law. Where Jesus now, as he's physically on the earth, ruling and reigning in a perfect sense, he's going to be enforcing whatever he wants to enforce, and we see Feast of Booths being an aspect of that. So that's one. Uh, second place is Ezekiel 40. We've been touching on this on Wednesday nights also. Ezekiel 40 to the end, which is 48. You have Israel back in the land, the land being divided up again. There's a temple. There are sacrifices made by Levites, particularly the sons of Zadok. You have all that happening again. People get freaked out. Well, how could there be temples because Jesus died? Well, again, the blood of goats and bulls never took away sin. Hebrews is clear about that. So we're not saying we have to make sacrifices again for sin. Sacrifices never could take away sin. And so there's a repurposing or a reclamation of sacrifices that Jesus has a purpose for that's going to happen in Jerusalem. And then you have Isaiah 19, and these are just three samples. Isaiah 19 is very fascinating, where you have a highway built from... Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. And you have them all participating in the works of God, all being called God's people. Israel is God's inheritance, but you have Assyria being called his people, and Egypt, the work of his hands. And they're getting along in harmony, and there's a highway, and they're all interacting and moving around. So it's, it's a pretty amazing thing, and it's all still future. Okay. All right, I got to finish this up here. Uh, it is important for us to preach Christ as King to remind ourselves and to tell the world that he has all rule and authority, okay? So big summary statement. If you're not leaving with anything else this morning, you can leave with this, that we remember that Christ is king. He has all rule, all authority. The world needs to know that too. And to sum up, this is what we were looking at over the last few weeks. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He was prophet in the past. He fulfilled that in his earthly life when he walked among us. He fulfilled that office in the past, and that ministry is still effective as we read his words in the present. His priesthood was fulfilled in the past, but it's also continuing to be fulfilled in the present as he continues to intercede for us. So he made atonement for sin once for all. His propitiation is squarely in the rearview mirror. He will never be crucified again, but he continually intercedes for us as our great high priest. And then king, that is a past, present, and future thing, because you have Jesus coming to earth, and he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm casting out demons. That's proof that the kingdom of God is among you. He's king of the Jews. He was born king of the Jews. So in that sense, you've got that kingship being fulfilled. But that's certainly not all that there is, because in the present, he continues to be king of the church. We are in his kingdom. We've been transferred to the domain of the, the son, who is the king. And there's a most explicit manifestation of his kingly office in the future, in the thousand-year reign, and all those things we were just talking about for the last 10 minutes or so. So it's past, present, and future, but most explicitly future. Okay. Wow. Very good. Thanks. That was fun. <clears throat> How about I say a quick prayer, and then we'll leave. <laughs> okay. God, again, we thank you so much for this time, and we thank you that you've given us to your son, Jesus, our King. In his name we pray, amen.